Okay, this morning is Sunday, February 5th. Some would say it's Super Bowl Sunday. I say it is Praising God Church Sunday. This morning's message is going to be called, you're like this, G300 Showcase. That way you have absolutely no idea what we're talking about until we get to it in the message. G300 Showcase. (laughs) My marketing background makes me want to call it the new and improved G3000 Showcase. <laughs> we won't be selling anything today. I won't come to your house with vacuum cleaners or DD7 or anything else. All right, are y'all in Matthew? Matthew, we're going to be in chapter five. I want to read you a beatitude that nobody ever includes in the beatitudes. <laughs> when you've quoted the beatitudes before, I guarantee you, you don't hear people qu- quote this one. And I really don't know why, because it's the next verse starts the same way as the previous verse. Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you. Now, I lied to you already this morning. I said I didn't know why people didn't quote that one. But we know why, don't we? That's not what you want to hear. You can live with the meek inheriting the earth. You can live with the pure in heart seeing God. But it's pretty hard to live with the blessed are you when people insult you, huh? The Word of God is very much like the Passover meal. The Passover meal had salty water and bitter herbs that went right along with the Word. You know why? Some of it is just not easy to swallow. It's supposed to leave that lasting impression on you. For 1,600 years, the Passover was performed once a year, every year, so that when you sat down to partake of this sacrificial lamb, you would also eat the Word of God that was sweet, the akifomen. It's like a dessert. But you would eat the Word of God that had bitter herbs and salty water on it. And it would remind you of the bitterness that you came out of and the word that is hard to digest and hard to swallow. Saints, if you're never reading anything in this book that is hard for you to swallow, you are not reading the book. That's just the truth. You might be listening to the six-foot-tall icicle teach you about psychology, but you are not reading the book because if you engage this text, it will engage you. (laughs) When you get hold of it, it finds a way to get hold of you. That's why it's called living. And we're called living sacrifices. The real problem with a living sacrifice is it finds a way to squirm off the altar on occasion. Praise God, huh? I'd rather be bound to the altar by God, willingly, than to squirm off of it. Blessed are you when people insult you, when they persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Now, that was not an optional statement. That's what's known in the Bible as an imperative Command comes from the word imperial, as if a king gave it. Rejoice and be glad. So next time somebody says, you are stupid, you're out of your mind, you're narrow-minded, you're ignorant, you're whatever else they say, you're supposed to rejoice and be glad. Well, they really will think you're out of your mind. You do that, huh? Somebody walks up and says, you idiot, and you... <laughs> Thank you very much, my friend. How is that going to work? I tell you what, it'll cause some question, though. And it's when man begins to open up in questions that he can find himself answered by God. I asked the Lord a question one time. It began my relationship with him. I said, what are you going to do about this heretic named Don Babin? He's the guy who came and preached at my school. Much to my surprise, Jesus answered me. If people can get to a place in life where they're willing to question, in other words, not think that they know every answer to everything, then that's a place that God can open. Open the door and he can step through it. Our job is to be ready to answer when people have questions. 
And our lives are supposed to provoke those questions by doing something. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. That's another one that doesn't make much sense when you live here in the South. But if you live in the northeastern part of the United States, like some of you have, what do they use salt for? Covers the roads. Breaks the ice, right? This is the lowest grade of salt. You don't very often go out to the street corner, move aside the snow, look for the ice, and sprinkle it on your french fries. It's the lowest grade of salt. Well, salt in the ancient world was the same way. The most purified salt went on your food. They had multiple grades of salt for different things, some for curing food, some for treating the roadways, just like always. There are multiple grades of Christians. It's not supposed to be, but there is. You are, cause, are supposed to cause an exciting, vivacious flavor in the mouth of your king. But when you quit acting in the way that the king has called you to act, you're not good for much but to be trampled on by men. We're not supposed to lose our saltiness. He says it in another way so that perhaps even the dull ones like me out there will get it. He says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He said, Let your light shine before men so that they will see your good deeds. Charlotte quoted this to me the other night at a dinner table. And I want to be honest, I, I was quiet because I was thinking about it. I hope this doesn't surprise you. There's occasionally a scripture that comes up that catches me off guard a little bit. I've always emphasized the fact that we don't shine, we don't do our acts of righteousness for men to see because Jesus taught that as well. So how do you balance the statement that Jesus says, don't be like the Pharisees who give for the world to see or fast for the world to see. Instead, do your acts of righteousness in private. Don't let the right hand know what the left is doing with a scripture that says, let your light shine before men so that they will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Aren't those two things totally opposite of each other? Doesn't that sound like a paradox to you? What's the difference? I got to meditate on this because when Charlotte quoted the verse to me, I was talking to her about some things that I don't generally share in, in church. I don't always go through details of people's lives and what the church has and hasn't done in church because I've been taught and in my heart I want these things to be between me and God. I'm not looking for praise from anybody. I want God's praise. So a lot of things we've done you don't even know about. How do you balance that with this though? If my heart is not to do these things for other people to see, but do them only for God to see and others see it, they'll praise God instead of me. That's how you balance these two verses. And as I began to meditate on that, I started to think, wow, how many times in Christianity have we been tricked to hiding in caves and holes, serving God privately, silently, quietly? How often have we shut up when we should have spoken up, not wanting to make waves? I was reading this morning about a Christian soldier in World War II. Let me read you this little paragraph here. It says, A faithful Christian soldier went to his chaplain for advice. Wouldn't you think you could get good advice from your chaplain? I wish you could go to every pastor in this town and get good advice. A faithful Christian soldier went to his chaplain for advice. Last night he said, When I knelt by my bed and prayed, 
the fellows began to ridicule me and throw shoes at me. What should I do? Well, said the chaplain, why don't you stop kneeling down? Just lie down in bed and lift your heart to God in silence. He's God. He'll hear you. This has been my practice for many years. After some time had passed, the chaplain asked the soldier how he was faring with his evening prayers. I'll tell you, Reverend, I followed your advice for three nights, but my conscience began to eat away at me because of the cowardice that had consumed me. I felt as if I was betraying my Lord, so I began to kneel down as I did before. The chaplain somewhat sheepishly and reluctantly asked, What happened? What happened when you did that? I was really amazed. After only two months, not a single fellow ridicules me anymore. Now the 15 men in my tent kneel down with me, and I pray aloud for all of them, said the soldier. Now that would make you wonder who was the better chaplain, the soldier or the preacher, wouldn't it? So often the world is just looking if in the face of persecution, in the face of ridicule, will you stand up and be real? Or will you do what they've already agreed to do, which is compromise and give in? The world is slapping faces sometimes to see if there's anyone that will turn the other cheek. They don't even mean to do it. They're just so used to hypocrisy, so used to failure, that they don't believe that what you're saying could be true. Jesus did not call us to do our acts of faith, our deeds of righteousness in a corner where nobody could see it. In fact, when they challenged Him, He said, Hey guys, I've been with you every day publicly in the temple. Why didn't you come and attack me there? Why do you come after me with chains and whips as a thief or a criminal? He did everything that He did for the whole world to see even His act of sacrifice. Naked, bleeding, dying before the whole world. Before the whole world. Can you rejoice in the face of persecution? We have to. It's what Jesus has called us to do. Turn with me to John 1. Y'all proud of me? I've got a few New Testament scriptures for you this week. It's okay. We won't end there. <laughs> now, what was our message title? Does anybody remember? G300 Showcase. Y'all keep that in the back of your mind somewhere. The G300 Showcase. Don't you love how churches always come up with these gimmicks? God forgive me, I shouldn't say gimmick, but yeah, we'll go ahead and say gimmick. The 1040 window, the G12 principle, the this, the that, the other, whatever is new and improved and a new way to excite your people, get them tapped in, right? Well, I'm poking a little bit fun at that this morning. The Word is supposed to get us tapped in. It's supposed to excite us. You don't have to reinvent the wheel every week. You don't have to submit to Christian fads every week. You know what you have to do? You have to submit to the Spirit of God who's been moving upon the earth since its beginning. That's not a new thing. It's just rarely done. All right, y'all in John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood, and your footnote will say, or overcome it. When Jesus' life was on earth, it was like a light shining to all men. When Jesus said things like in Matthew 5:17 that He didn't come to abolish the law, He came to fulfill it. 
that not one jot, not one tittle would pass away from the law until heaven and earth disappeared. And if you wanted to be great in the kingdom, you needed to do the things contained in the law and teach others to do it as well. He moved right on to shine before men. Do you know how He shined? He said, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this. He taught them the right way to shine the Word of God. Peter picks up on this principle and calls us living epistles that all men can read everywhere. There is a language on this earth that is called body language. I can sit sometimes, look at you, and tell you tell whether you're upset with me, happy with me, contemplating, whatever it might be, just without you even speaking. Well, Christianity is much that same way. That lamp is making no noise, and yet its effects are touching the whole room. He didn't call us necessarily to be a loudspeaker for Him. That's something that I've had to learn. He called us to live a life that shines before men. That life, life that we shine, that light that we shine, comes from His life in us. When He appeared on earth, He became the source of that light. In John 8:12, Jesus stands up and He says, I am the light of the world. And He teaches others to follow Him. That happened at a very specific time in their history to teach them something powerfully. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the portico to the temple, they had this enormous candelabra. It's this flaming thing. And you know what it represented? It represented that fire by night in the desert that they followed and the cloud of fire during the day. Because Israel had been taught every day, you wake up and you look. If it moves, you move. You do what it does. You follow the presence of God. Jesus was boldly proclaiming to everyone in Israel, I am this light. You need to follow me. You need to do the things that I do. Now John was very clear. He said he himself was not that light. He came to witness about the light. When I'm telling you to shine, we're not talking about reflecting your own glory. We're talking about reflecting the glory that God has given you. In this way, you're very much like the moon that hangs out in the dark sky among the stars, has no light of its own, and yet it reflects the light of the sun in a very dark world. That's a Christian's role in life. It's what we're supposed to do. Not very effective, though, if it's hidden, if it's under a bushel, if it's shy, if it is scared, if it lacks confidence. How many times in the Word have we covered lately where somebody like Joshua stands up and says, Be bold! Be strong! For the Lord thy God is with you. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. The Lord thy God is with you. Over and over and over. This was to teach the people it doesn't matter what you face. In fact, they came to Jesus often. I mean, one time after He teaches on the light in John 9, He says, as long as it's day, we're going to do the work of Him who sent me because night's coming when no man can work. In other words, while I'm in this life, I'll shine light because death is coming. And after that, your work doesn't matter. That's what He's teaching them. <laughs> they said... Hey, Herod wants to kill you. He said, you tell that fox I will push on today, tomorrow, and on the third day I'll reach my goal. I won't back up. I'm going to push and push and push because we were called to be soldiers. Now, when you tell this especially to young people full of zeal, I know, first weekend I got saved, I went straight to the mall. In the first ten minutes with my box full of tracks, I found a biker. Went and grabbed him by the chest hair, armpit and chest hair. You imagine how that must have felt. Jerked him to my face about two inches away and yelled in his face, Jesus loves you. Was that shining the light of the Lord? Well, I might argue yes, but it was right in his eyes. (laughs) 
I bet he's never forgotten the experience. I know I haven't. They tried to arrest me. <laughs> but at least there was zeal there. Now, as we mature, that zeal doesn't go away. You just learn a better way to do it. But sometimes what the devil tricks us into is smothering that zeal under the auspices of wisdom until it is non-existent. Because, friends, it will never feel wise to the flesh to shine brightly for the Lord because you will be persecuted, which should be a great source of joy for us. What an unusual system God has put us in, huh? Okay, turn with me to Psalm 18. Tells you I wouldn't stand in the New Testament long. Y'all don't get the idea that something's wrong with the New Testament. I told you the reason I preach like I do is because you're supposed to know the New Testament already. Most of you have been saved for many years. If you hadn't read the first 27 books, I figured there's no hope of you having read the first 39. So I'm going to emphasize those whenever I get a chance. There's not a single thought contained in the New Testament that's not already expressed in the Old. Reading the New Testament is like reading the Cliff Notes. Cliff Notes are good. I preferred them when I was in school. They were my favorite. <laughs> but the book that they're based on is even more rich, even more full of truths. You can't expect those 27 books in the New Testament to contain all that you could ever need. If they did, your Bible wouldn't contain the first 39. We have to be data miners, friends. You've got to go dig into the Word. Start in the Torah. Move to the rest of the whole Tanakh. Dig in it. Find the truth. Look for the things that they missed in their cross-references. You know how many times I found that Jesus was quoting a Scripture out of Ezekiel that nobody knows? That, uh, not nobody. The publishers of the Bible don't give credit for? Yeah, they just missed it. Everything that Jesus said came from the Old Testament. You know why? He was the Word of God. And what was the Word of God? The Older Testament. That's right. Need to learn to love it, saints. That's where the New Testament church. We are a New Testament church. We want to go back to the book of Acts. We want to do the things in the New Testament. Guys, they didn't have a New Testament. <laughs> they had an Older Testament. That was it. And they did all of those things off studying it. Now, I'm not teaching you that I don't love the New. I told you. I mean, I read it all of the time. I take it for granted that you love it enough to have basically memorized it. Am I giving you too much credit? <laughs> It's all right. We're speaking in faith, right? Y'all in Psalm 18? Psalm 18, looking around, verse 25. You've heard people quote this a lot. I wonder how often they've reflected on it, about this light in us. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. I'm going to read a little more. My God turns my darkness into light. The moon has no luminescent source of its own. In fact, if you were just staring at the moon and there were no sun, all you would see is darkness. But because it's been trained to reflect the light of the sun, it shines in a dark sky. That's just like you. I'm not telling you to deny the fact that there's weakness in you. In fact, the way to strengthen the kingdom is to acknowledge weakness. I love you enough often to talk to you openly about my own weakness and on the rare chance, I mean minuscule chance, that I spot one in you, 
I love you enough to bring it up. You know why? This is the way to strength. We are not a reformed church. We are a church that is reforming. I named this place Life-Changing Ministries. You know why? None of us have arrived. Not one. We are all in the process of changing. One of the most frustrating things about me is that I will absolutely not accept you the way that you are. Now, you hear me say that. I'll meet you where you are, and we will begin on a journey to where we should be. (laughs) It's not okay to dwell in the place we are. No matter how far along you are, you do not camp along the way. You let God take the darkness in you and turn it into light. And the first step in that area, every time, the first step is by acknowledging that it's there. That's the first step. And He does something that is powerful. He's been doing it since Genesis 1, verse 3. He speaks into that darkness and says, let there be light. And then He separates the two. And the light that He puts in you begins to war against the darkness that's already there until it overcomes it. Do you remember John 1 verse 4? It says, The light has shone in the darkness and the darkness did not understand it or overcome it. His Word in you, if you dwell in it, will overcome any problem you have. You don't need a psychology lesson. You don't need a 12-step program. You don't need church discipline where you step down from ministry and go spend a month on some other planet somewhere, you need to apply the Word. That's what you need. Hey, how are you? All right, Psalm uh, 18. I wanted to keep reading a little bit here just because I love this. This is a quote from 2 Samuel 22 and it is also Psalm 18 and it's speaking about Jesus. Uh, We'll pick back up in verse 27. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With Your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides Yahweh? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. You hear this? This man's acknowledged that there was darkness in his life, that God is turning it into light, that God makes His way perfect, and God arms him with strength. He's not claiming to possess those things himself. He's saying God's given them. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. Anybody ever have the little devotional? Hind's feet for high places? Did you ever even know what it meant? I never understood the King James either. I read it in English here, modern English, and now I know exactly what it means. It means you can walk in the high places with God. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back until they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. This is my favorite part right here. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but He did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust born on the wind and poured them out like mud in the streets. 
David was completely aware of his weakness, which made him strong in the kingdom. Because whatever God wanted to accomplish, He could accomplish through David, knowing David would never get the glory for it. God has called us to be a light that shines. He put His life that is light in you. And the one thing that He's asked you to do is not hide it. Not keep it a secret. Not put it under a bushel. Not hide it in a cave. Because He can use it to cause wonder in other people. And that wonder opens a door. It causes them to ask questions where God can shine His light in them. How hard is it? He didn't tell you speak up. He told you shine. I found out in my life it's easier to speak up than shine. It's easier to say than to do. What the world is looking for, quite honestly, is somebody that focuses on deed rather than creed. The book of James, they say, is the most Jewish book. Not because of its writing style, not because of the original manuscript, but because of its attitude. James says, you say you have faith, I'll show you my faith by what I do. That is a very Jewish thought. The Jews saw their life expression as faith, not what they believed. They saw their walk with God. In fact, their term, halakha, walk with God, meant my belief expressed in my walk. You want to know what I believe? Watch the way that I walk. A missionary who is preaching to a group of Hindu women was surprised to see one of them get up and walk away. Soon she returned and listened more intently than before. Why would you leave in the middle of my message? asked the missionary. I was so interested in the wonderful things that you were saying, I went to ask your friends if you live like you teach. They said you do. So I came back to hear more about this Jesus. Boy, isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful? Come on, young, answer me. Is that powerful? I want to live like I teach. And I teach some pretty bold things. That gives me a lot to live up to. And I admit, I fall short often. But praise God, we serve a God who will take your darkness and turn it into light. Turn with me to Proverbs. You can just hang a right from where you are. We're going to be in Proverbs 20. How many people have walked an altar, gotten baptized, gotten a gift certificate, Maybe receive donuts on a regular basis. In lieu of the fresh Word of God, we just hand out Shipley's, you know? Only to fail in their Christian profession. Their walk doesn't match their talk. How many of us have done that? Not just one day or two days. You ever spend a week of your life like that? You have trouble looking back and going, when was I saved? Do you? I understand. I claim to be a Christian from nine years old on. I could quote more Scripture than most of the adults in my life. There was no real significant, powerful change in my life until I was 18. When was he saved? Well, I didn't stand before the king and I still haven't. I hope to be saved when I stand before him because that's the walk that I'm on and profession that I've made. When does credit become important? When you have to buy something. <laughs> you say, well, were you saved then or were you saved now? Friends, you're saved when you face the judgment. Let's just start there. And you better live your life in a way that shows you're ready to face the judgment. Y'all with me in Proverbs? Yeah. Proverbs 20, verse 25. It is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly, only later to consider his vows. Mm. A wise king winnows out the wicked. He drives the threshing wheel over them. 
Do y'all not hear any New Testament thought being expressed here? How about counting the cost before salvation? How about a whole parable Jesus taught about a man who builds a tower? Would he not first see whether he has what it costs to complete it? Or a king that goes to army against another king? Would he not first count his troops and see if he could win? We can't ask people to dedicate their lives to Jesus without telling them the cost and what it means. It's a fool who dedicates something rashly and only considers later his vows. And a wise king winnows out his people. Didn't John the Baptist teach this? His winnowing fork is in his hand. A winnowing fork is an instrument of division. He said, the wheat he will gather into the barn and the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Guys, he's not talking about the church and the lost. There's already that division. That separation's already occurred. He's talking about all those that claim to be in the body of Christ. He will use his winnowing fork and he will separate them. Some will get burned and others will be brought into the barn. Isn't that interesting? You know what the difference between the two groups was? What made one wheat and one chaff? Whether or not they were moved by His Holy Spirit. Go back and read it. Tell me if that's not true. You'll hear every commentary on every shelf say something else. You go back and read it and you tell me what you think it says. Now somebody says, that's your interpretation. Okay? What's yours? Don't go grab Barclay. Don't go grab Matthew Henry. You read it. You make a decision. We will either yield to God's Spirit or we won't. I want to yield to His Spirit and shine brightly. It's His light I need to reflect, not my own. By the way, the next verse, powerful one. Verse 27, The lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out His inmost being. You need to go ahead and admit right up front, Lord, I don't have it all together. There's still more darkness in me than I would like. And I need you to turn it into light because He's already searching you. He's working through David, working through Brad, working through Bobby, trying to get us to acknowledge our shortcomings so that He can take a weakness and turn it into something strong. What He wants is a select group of people. He wants a group of people that are aware of their weakness and aware of spiritual principles so that He can empower you to do great things. In fact... He's looking for a special group called the G300. I've just renamed them. The G300. Y'all thought I forgot about our message this morning, didn't you? What was the message title? Anybody write down? G300 Showcase. Turn with me to Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. We'll be in Judges 6. That might give you a hint as to what the G stands for. Everybody's furiously reading at six, right? While you're turning there, let me read you another story. Do you mind if I do that every once in a while? After I've studied the message and figured out what I want to preach on, I get bored and I start reading whatever else I can find, and it's amazing what I find on Sunday mornings. Anybody ever heard of an artist named Dore? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. It's D-O-R-E with the little mark over the E. Yeah, good. Two people have heard. Dior? Is that what you think? We'll take Mandy as the... Uh, Definitive authority on the subject. Gutav Dior, the famous artist, once lost his passport while traveling in Europe. When he came to the boundary post between two countries and was asked for his passport, he fumbled about and finally announced, I've lost it, but it's all right. I'm Dior. 
the artist. Please let me go in. Oh no, said the officer. We have plenty of people representing themselves as this or that great person. Here's a pencil and paper. Now if you really are Dior, the artist, prove it by drawing me a picture. He took the pencil and drew some pictures of a scene in the immediate area. Now I am perfectly sure that you are Dior. No one else could draw like that, said the officer, as he allowed Dior to enter the country. So it is with us. People follow what we do on the stage of life. They look to see if our conduct squares with our profession of who we are. Are we drawing the picture of Christ, as it were, or of a different person? What the world wants to see is reality in our actions. It has been said that God has great and wonderful things to display if He could only find suitable showcases. Are you a good showcase for Jesus Christ this morning? I want to look at how we can be a good showcase for Jesus. You know, in Judges 6, G300 showcase. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Where were they? Hiding. When Israel crossed the Jordan River, when they saw the kingdom of Jericho fall at the word of the Lord, when they went out and trounced other kingdoms, when Joshua made the statement, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What land were they promised? They were promised that entire real estate in the Middle East. In fact, it was revealed to Abraham, Paul says in Romans 4, that he'd be an heir of the whole world. And what are the Israelites doing? Hiding. Why? Why are the Israelites hiding here? What does the Scripture say? Because they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and Midian was oppressive. You know how most Christians are hiding in caves, in clefts of rock? Because you're aware that you've done some evil things. You're aware that your profession does not always square with the painting that you desire to portray. And rather than freely admit it, we just hide. We don't stand up so boldly. I mean, after all, who are we? We're flawed too. We make mistakes too. How can I tell Brad boldly about Jesus when Brad knows that I lost my temper a week ago? That's precisely why you can tell Brad about Jesus. Brad, I'm just like you. And look at how God helps me. Look at the way that He's causing me to prosper. He's carrying me on His wings like a child. He hasn't turned away from me because of my great failing. Instead, He's shown me great mercy. This has always caused religious people problems. You remember what the Pharisees said when a woman came, prostrated herself on the ground, began to weep and wash Jesus' feet with her hair. You remember what they said? If He knew what kind of woman this was, He wouldn't allow her to touch Him. What does that tell you about them? They wouldn't have allowed her to touch them. They were too good to be touched by her filthiness. And what did Jesus say? He who has sinned much, loves much. That's our testimony. Friends, I sinned much, but now I love much. I'm an object of mercy. God hasn't given up on me. Look, He's working in my life. I'm not where I'm supposed to be yet, but I'm also not where I was. There is progress towards heaven. There is progress towards heavenly things. I'm showing myself to be a subject of the kingdom because more of His principles are becoming my daily life. 
the right people will feel that. The right people will be moved by that. The right people will see hope in that. Well, Eric, what do you mean the right people? What the Bible calls elect. You cannot be saved. You cannot be saved unless the Spirit of the Father draws you. John 6.44 says that plainly. He desires everybody to be saved, but if you're not receptive to the Spirit, you can't even be saved. Well, how do you know when somebody's receptive to the Spirit? When the real gospel message begins to be attractive to them. You know what, though? The real gospel message is not usually what gets there first. They hear, God wants you rich! God wants you blessed! God wants you yellow, coward, flying away! God wants you to accept the American gospel. Jesus in a three-piece suit, smarter than everybody else, better businessman than everybody else, high and lifted up above all the stench of the earth. They hear every gospel but the real gospel that says Jesus will meet you where you are and then change you along His way. That's the gospel. It's not what we hear, but that is the gospel and that's what your lives need to portray. That's the light that we shine. Not the light that is the pretense of perfection, the light that says, I am flawed, flawed to the point of death, and yet His life lives in me. They stoned Paul outside Lystra and Derby. Do you know why? Because he said, God called me to be a light to the Gentiles. What Isaiah the prophet said, I am living out now. Oh, they liked that message. Enough to throw rocks at him until he was dead. He had the sentence of death in his heart, just like us. And yet he stood up and carried the message on because the life of Christ compelled him. A snake could bite him and he could shake it off in the fire because his life had greater purpose. What's been biting you? What's been knocking you down? What nags at you? What's eating away at your conscience? Turn over the stones. Let God see it. Ask Him to take your darkness and make it light that it might compel you to live as He lived. We can make a difference in this world. You said, this is a tiny church. we got 20 chairs in here that are almost all full, but not quite. What difference could we possibly make among the millions in Houston? Well, I don't know. Jesus took 12. One of them was a devil and He changed the whole world. Everybody on this globe is writing checks now. And every time they put a date on a check, it's a testimony to the message carried out by the 11 apostles. Because we number our years based on the date of His arrival. What difference can we possibly make? Stand up and live it. We'll find out. He's just looking for a few. The G300 showcase. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops... By the way, you know the only time it's okay to hide? They're hiding, right? When is the only time it's okay to hide? There's a little bit of Bible trivia for you. It's in Colossians 3. You don't have to turn there, but if you need to cheat to get the answer, you can. No, it's not okay to hide when they resist you. It's okay to hide your life in Christ. It's okay to wrap yourself up in Him like a garment. When my little kids are scared, they get under their comforter in their bed and they just peek out into the room. It is okay to be so wrapped up in Christ that all you are doing is peeking out at the world, hoping that all they see of you is Him. That's okay. You can wrap yourself up in Him. He'll protect you. He'll keep you warm and He'll comfort you. He's even called the Comforter. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites... Who are the Amalekites? We taught on this, dealing with Amalek. The warlike people who live in the valley, they position themselves between you and what God's called you to do. 
They're always used in this sense, huh? Amalekites and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. What did they do? They ruined the crops. They stopped the life-giving power. There is a thief in this world, John 10.10 says, and he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. More than anything, he wants to take the fruit out of your life. He wants you to hide in the clefts of the rocks, scared to go out and reap a harvest, knowing full good and well that Jesus said, open your eyes. I tell you, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. Jesus wanted us to look around and see a great need and answer a great call. And so often we hide in the rocks because of our own insecurities and failings, as if Jesus isn't big enough to use you anyway. What perfect person did He ever call? Didn't He go to the dregs of the earth to prove a point? He called whores and tax collectors and murderers for a reason. It should give us hope. Midian so impoverished, verse 6, the Israelites, that they cried out to the Lord for help. Sometimes we only cry out to the Lord when we are at our wit's end. How much better would it be if you could learn to speak to Him daily about everything in your life? The reason some men sin goes on ahead of them and reaches the judgment and others trails behind them is because some will acknowledge it and some won't. Friends, judgment begins with the house of God. Paul said if judgment begins with the house of God, what will be the outcome for the ungodly? How does it begin with you? Because every day you're honest about what's happened. If with nobody else, if you can't be honest with your own wife, and you can't be honest with your own kids, and you can't be honest with your own church, start with being honest with Jesus. And you know what? You'll find the empowerment to be honest with everybody else because whatever you are is what He's called and what He's making in you. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I like how one preacher said it. God didn't make any junk. You are something He can work with. Quit trying to be somebody else. Quit trying to present perfect and just be His workmanship. He's created good works for you to do. He's laid them out in advance for you to do them. Your job is just to let Him work effectively in your life. And so what if you're not as good looking as Matthew or as strong as David? That's okay. He's called you in a unique way. No reason to hide. No reason to hide. They cry out to the Lord for help. By the way, 1 John 3, 8, it's one you ought to commit to memory. It says the reason that Jesus Christ appeared was to destroy the devil's work. There is a thief working in our lives to steal from us, to kill us, and to destroy us because he wants no crops to come from you. He wants no life to come from you. And Jesus came to destroy his work. But where is Jesus right now? Is Jesus sitting in this room? Jesus is in a glorified body in a physical location. He's no more omnipresent than you are. I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. He's a glorified man whom the fullness of the Godhead lives in so that we call Him God. But He is in one location somewhere called the right hand of the Father. So when Jesus does something on earth, how does He do it? When Jesus wants to move on earth 
and help His people or do something. He does it by way of His Spirit that is everywhere moving in His people that are declared to be His body. They cried to the Lord for help. Friends, if we don't do the work of God on earth, it doesn't get done. Quit sitting by waiting for someone else to do it. This is not an entitlement society. Just waiting for somebody else to do everything for you. You were saved to do the work of the kingdom. They cried to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, He sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh Elohim. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. You know what I love about this prophet? Boy, he lays it on the line, doesn't he? He says, hey, I'm coming on behalf of God who snatched you right out of Egypt, who brought you into this land where you're hiding like kids. The land that's supposed to be yours, but you're not listening to God. You know what I like best about the prophet, though? Not that he was bold. The best thing in the world about this prophet. Did his deeds shine before men? Yeah. But what's his name? Hmm. I've got no idea. His deeds are a lasting testimony about the faithfulness of God, but you don't even know the man's name. When Christians do their work right, nobody will remember your name, but they'll remember the exploits God did through you for generations to come. God should leave in your life a legacy, a testimony, something that outlasts you on the earth done for Him, but you don't get credit for it. They won't even remember your name if you do it right. I want my life to be pouring into other people's lives. And if I do it right, I may never hopefully receive credit for it. But they'll go on and touch other people's lives all over the globe and nobody will ever know where it started from or where it came except the credit God is the source. It's called transitional leadership. And that's the only way Jesus ever did it. The problem is we want to make a name for ourselves. And that's wrong. G300 showcase. Let's get to the meat of the message. That'd be all right? You all like that? Then the Israelites cried to the Lord. We read that, didn't we? Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, guys, I'm not the agricultural genius. I can't grow a ficus tree. I mean, I, I have no clue. Matthew and Cassidy are studying gardening and I hope they master it because I'll eat all their food. <laughs> but he's threshing wheat in a wine press. That doesn't sound very smart, does it? Why would he be doing that? Well, the Scripture says, to keep it from the Midianites. He went out to a wine press, which has a similar shape to a threshing floor, although it's not entirely the same. And that's where he was threshing his wheat. Why? Because he was scared. He was full of weakness. You might even say he was a coward. And yet, verse 12 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. We are so often hiding in the wine press with the wheat, scared to death somebody's going to take what we have. 
pick on us or say bad things about us. Instead of rejoicing when we're persecuted, we hide from it. And yet the Lord looks right at you and says, Hey, buddy, you're supposed to be a mighty warrior. I'm with you. Now you're a mighty warrior because of who you are. You're a mighty warrior because I'm with you. Where does that mean God was? Right there with Gideon hiding in the wine press. We don't like to think like that, do we? Would God hide? No, of course not. But God's ambassador was hiding, which the net effect, God's representative is hiding. So what's God doing? It's mercy. Goes down and shakes the man says, Come on, I'm with you. You with me equals mighty warrior. Let's go. Let's get up. It's time to fight. Get out of the wine press and get on the battlefield. Come on, stand up. Be heard. Let somebody know who you are. After this, it becomes known as Jerob Baal. You know why? All the people said, Ooh, he's standing up for himself. Baal's going to contend with him. I don't know about you, but it's just fine with me if people call me Jerob Baal. I'm supposed, I was born for contention with the enemy. You were born to be in battle with the enemy. Jesus said only forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. You were born for warfare with the enemy. We've got to get out of the wine press where we've been hiding. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all His wonders our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us into the hand of Midian. Did the Lord abandon them into the hand of Midian or did they refuse to get up and do what the Lord said to do? See, we blame our woes on God when the truth is it comes from our unfaithfulness. He says, where are the miracles that we heard about from our fathers? Well, do the things your fathers did and you will see the miracles. Gideon's going to prove that. He's going to do it. As soon as he begins to be obedient to the call, the miracles come. Matthew 28, 20 tells us that Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. But we hide in fear as if He's not with us. In John 14, He said, I will give you another counselor, one who is like me, who will be with you always until the end of the age. And we act like He's not there. And we're scared. Hebrews 4 teaches us that all things in heaven and earth are subject to the King, Jesus. Yet at the present, we don't see it. What we do see is Jesus lifted up. In other words, there is one man who's made it to perfection. There is one man who hears perfectly from God. There is one man who is God's perfect representative. And that ought to be enough for you to let you know it can be done in His strength. Now it's time to go out and bring everything into submission. He conveyed the message. It's your job to carry out the battle plan. What king actually shows up on the battle line? I read to you out of Micah 10, 12 weeks ago. He's the Lord who goes forth and breaks open a way where there is no way, who leads the sheep through the gate in a joyful procession. So Gideon's complaining a little bit. Verse 14, The Lord said to him, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Where did he find Gideon? Where did he find him? Hiding. And yet the Lord calls him a mighty warrior and tells him to go in the strength he has. I find there's a huge problem with the American church. We're asking for more. We sing songs, more love, more power, more of you in my life. More, 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 more. As if he hasn't already given us enough. 
How much more Word do you need to hear before you begin to live it? How much more infilling of the Holy Spirit do you need before you begin to act empowered? How much more do you need before you do something? He said, go in the strength you have. While Gideon was hiding in the winepress, he had within him what he already needed because God had given it to him. But he didn't know it. He didn't know what he had. The way the devil's kept most of us bound up is you have no idea how dangerous you are to the enemy. All you can see is your own imperfections. All you can see is your own failing. And you forget that He's trained you for battle. That you have the feet of a deer to stand on the high places. You think that because there's little bits of darkness in you that the light cannot overcome it. Saints, realize who we are. You're part of Gideon's select army. You are supposed to be a showcase for God's power. And the more weakness you have the easier it is to see God's power and distinguish it from your weakness. We're asking for more instead of using what we have. Pray for the will of God. Others will run you over from behind while they do the will of God. Listen to him whine. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least of my family. Hebrews 11.44 says that 34, 11, 34, that we serve a God who takes weaknesses and turns them into strengths. So when you whine to God and tell Him all the reasons you can't, all He sees in you is potential. He sees somebody, wow, if I pour myself into Him, He will, He can. Quit telling God all the reasons that you can't and start acting like you can because He's with you. He's with you. The Lord answered, I will be with you. Have you noticed that's pretty well God's answer for everything? Hey, buddy, you call me God. You call me Lord. You say Adonai, which means sovereign, Lord, owner, and controller. You call me Adonai, I'm with you. Now, is what you say true or not? I'm with you. What else do you need to know? I can tell you my son is not scared as long as I'm with him. Poor guy. He's a little bit deluded. But he thinks there's nothing that daddy can't do. He's not scared of anything or anyone as long as dad is there. All that we would be like children. That's the way to enter the kingdom. That is the way to enter the kingdom. Now, I'm fortunate enough to have a couple father figures in my life. Awesome. Blessed beyond belief. But there's an age in every adolescent's life where you begin to realize that those people are not perfect, that their strength has limits, that their wisdom has limits, all of those things. That's an odd place for a teenager, and that's usually when it happens. That's As the old axiom says, quick, get a job, move out while you still know everything. Because soon as the young man detects that he's coming into an age where he's somewhere close to a level of being able to compete or understand physically or mentally, he assumes mom, dad, they don't know anything. They're not infallible after all. We serve a God that you will never reach the limits of His wisdom. You will never reach the limits of His strength. You will never find a place that He's deficient in. And if you're smart, you won't focus on the deficiencies of others. God flows perfectly in authority and power. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all of the Midianites. Now Gideon goes through this whole long procession of things where he says, look, look, look. Okay, if you're with me and you're going to strike down the Midianites, wait right here, God. Can you imagine saying that? 
I wouldn't ask Steve or Bobby or Craig to wait right here while I go do some things and come back. I wouldn't do that. I might do it to Judah. He's my son. But I sure wouldn't do that to another man. Can you imagine looking at God and saying, look, look, if you're God, hang out here for a while while I go get some stuff done, okay? Then I'll come back, and if you're still here, I'll know you're God. Can you imagine doing that? The mercy of God. God hangs out for a while. <laughs> he, answers his, he answers Gideon's fire on a rock. Licks up this sacrifice. You know what Gideon's answer is? <laughs> Yahweh Shalom. You are my peace. He builds an altar right there and says, Yahweh is my peace. The coward is learning to become a warrior and be at peace in any situation because he's realized he really is with me. You know what we need? We need to acknowledge our weakness. We need to acknowledge we've been scared in battle at times. Let God show Himself to us. Prove Himself to us. And all of a sudden, this peace begins to dwell in you. Where when the battle comes, your knees don't shake. Your hands don't tremble because you know your big brother has got your back. Right there. Yeah? You will strike them down as one man. To Gideon, the Midianites are a great, vast army. In fact, the Bible says over and over and over they can't be counted. The, Gideon, uh, the uh, Midianites and the Amalekites can't be counted. They've got more camels than can be counted. Camels were the equivalent of tanks in this day. More than could be counted. But to God, it's just like thump knocking over one man. You're going to find out, though. Turn with me to chapter 7. Gideon uh, goes out and contends with Baal by cutting down an Asherah pole, killing uh, the second bull in his father's flock, and doing some other things that just showed obedience now that he had the peace of God dwelling in his life. And they rename him. And in Judges 7... We're going to close with the G300 showcase here. <laughs> I don't often preach with gimmicks, but it just seemed fun this morning. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and by the way, Jerob Baal means one who Baal is contending with. You should be known as somebody who's contending with the enemy, not somebody who's compromised with him. We're not often honest about that, but if you look around in the church world, what you see is people that have made treaty with the enemy. You don't see people who are in contention warfare with him every day. Now, there are some out there. You're not the only ones. He's reserved more than 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. But we're supposed to be known for that. You know what that means? Trouble's going to surround your life, but you're going to find peace in it. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of the, the, camp of the Midian... I'm sorry... The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into your hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. If 22,000 left and 10,000 remained before this proclamation went out, how many were there? 32,000. Good private school education. 32,000 men. And when it is said, after having heard from God, after having seen Him in your midst, after answering the call, you who still shake with fear and can't master it, leave. 22,000 left 
And that was just fine with God. It was just fine with Him. We think that we need the support of everyone around us. You only need to know that God is with you. So now, we've got 10,000 men. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. Sifting. That's like wheat. You sift wheat. What do you sift wheat with? A winnowing fork. You remember the proverb? God sifts the wheat and is also what John the Baptist was preaching? Sifting the wheat? Well, if we're going to get sifted, don't you want to know how to end up in one camp or another? Yeah, because you remember, you're either wheat or you are chaff. The wheat gets gathered into the barn and what happens with the chaff? Burned with unquenchable fire. Wow. It's not purgatory then. Okay. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. Isn't it amazing God even has to clarify that? He's reminding Gideon, look, I'm God. I'm going to tell you who I want to stay and who I want to go, okay? You're going to do what I say? And Gideon says, yes, sir, I'm going to do what you say. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog, D-A-W-G, from those who kneel down to drink. 3,000 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. I said 3,000. That wasn't right, was it? 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you from the Midianites and bring the Midianites into your hands. He goes down to the water with 10,000 men. Out of the 10,000 men, 300 do one thing and 9,700 do another. Who makes it into Gideon's special 300? The ones that act like dogs. Doesn't that seem strange? Doesn't it? Seem kind of strange? What is different about the way a dog drinks and what he's talking about? Kneeling. What's the difference between kneeling and lapping the water with your hand? Let me give you a little visual here. Y'all are like this. You're thirsty. You go out into the desert. You get down on your knees and drink bowed to the water. What can you not be doing? You can't be looking around. You can't be concerned with the battle. You can't be concerned with anything except quenching your own thirst. That's selfish, isn't it? That shows no care for what's happening. No thought for the soldier on your left or your right. What does it mean to laugh like a dog? Why would a dog do this? And what is that? Man, she's got dogs. She even just demonstrated for us. <laughs> a dog's tongue goes down to the water while his eyes are looking all around the room. If it's my fat dachshund, she's looking for more food. That tongue curls under, grabs the water, and brings it back to their mouth. Some of these men went down to the water and while they're looking all around, keeping their head on a swivel because they're there for one reason, to take it to Midian. They're grabbing the water with their hand, bringing it to their mouth. Those were the kind that God could take. He was going to showcase His power in someone. That was without question. But who would He choose to showcase His power in? Those that were spiritually aware that they were in a battle. 
all we're asking for this morning, all that we are asking for is that you will become aware of the battle that you're in. You don't have a choice. You're in it whether you want to be or not. You might as well acknowledge it and decide to take it to the enemy before he takes it to you. If you will be spiritually aware, then you are somebody that God can showcase His power in. By the way, and I'm out of time here, these guys didn't even have to fight. Isn't that amazing? They didn't have to go down and beat up the Midianites and the Amalekites. You know why? God put fear in the enemy's camp. In fact, Gideon and a friend of his named Pura walked down and they listened. And they overhear one Midianite telling another Midianite, last night I had a dream that a giant loaf of barley came down and whipped all of us. Only God could give a dream like that. A Subway sandwich appeared and Matthew beat up everybody around him with the Subway sandwich. He's on Atkins. It was a flaming T-bone. And so when Gideon began to make noise and roll pots down a hill, all of Midian ran into confusion. They even started killing each other. God's not looking for your ability and your strength. He's looking for your obedience, your awareness of His presence. You take seriously the battle that we're in. He'll take whatever darkness is in you and turn it to light. He'll take whatever weakness is in you and make it strength. All you have to do is refuse to hide. Refuse to back up and say, Here I am, Lord. Use me. Isaiah said that, followed by, I'm a man of unclean lips. Could you help me? What did he do? He helped him. Took a coal from his fire and touched his lips. I'd rather just learn to quit saying dirty things myself. But it worked. God is looking for a special group of people to showcase His power in. Your life's going to paint one portrait or another. You get to decide who. You can be like the chaplain that learns to pray quietly in his own bed where nobody can hear. You can be like the soldier who by the example he sets causes others to want to follow his lead. People are going to be looking like the Hindu woman to find out whether the things that you teach are the things that you live. Some will be disappointed. They're going to major on the minors. You're going to run through a stop sign and they just can't handle that. How could a preacher run through a stop sign? Drive with me. You'll find out exactly how. <laughs> and yet God uses us anyway. God's looking for somebody to showcase His power in. Stand up. Let's pray.